by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, welcome to Think Sustainability, a show where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. I'm Jake Morecambe. And before we get started today, I just wanted to say a big thanks to Miles Herbert, who's been filling in for me the past month. Now, on the show today... We looked at conditions leading up to the 2013 fires, and then we've looked at conditions that we have currently, and we're actually tracking drier conditions now than we had prior to the 2013 fires. Spring has sprung, but does that bring along with it a blazing bushfire season for Australia this year? And when recycling heads straight to landfill, we'll be taking a look at what the fire at Melbourne's Coolaroo Recycling Facility says about our waste management strategies moving forward. On the 26th of November 2012, Australia's iconic Bondi Beach was closed as the crisp blue coastline turned red. And although many likened the new blood-red waters of Bondi to that written in scripture, it was in fact algae that was responsible. Although not necessarily life-threatening, algal blooms, as they're called, can be harmful, as dangerous toxins can reside in the water where the bloom occurs and even make their way into sea life. Gustav Hallegraff and Shauna Murray were part of a conference held at the University of Technology, Sydney, called Harmful Algal Blooms and Climate Change. I started off by asking Shauna what happens when an algal bloom goes bad. When they produce toxins that impact uh, humanity, so uh, they either get into the food chain and they impact seafood supplies or they kill fish or they can also produce a a very high biomass unsightly bloom that has some other impacts. What do they look like? Absolutely beautiful. (laughs) Devote your entire life to it. So it seems somewhat counterintuitive, this thing that can potentially cause damage can be so stunning. It's beauty and the beast. Most of them are a golden brown in colour. They're not green like the land plants. They're very different pigments. Most of them are golden brown. And some of them, at their occurring great density, can discolour the water with slightly reddish tint. And an old name for these phenomena were red tides. And so you were talking about when they do bloom, potential for toxicity. How does that affect humans? It's mainly through the aquaculture and fishing industries. So particularly around the world, aquaculture is a very important growing industry. And now it's up to about half of our seafood around the world is produced through aquaculture. So when the shellfish is grown in the presence of a toxic microalgal species that's producing these compounds, then shellfish, as you know, are filter feeders. So they're going to pick up whatever happens to be in the water around them. And that, if that's a harmful toxin, then you can produce shellfish, which are harmful to humans to eat. Makes us sick. It makes us sick. (laughs) Exactly. Have have there been examples of that where there have been toxin-infused shellfish that humans have consumed? Yeah, so the very first description of this phenomena of human illness, we call it paralytic shellfish poisoning, goes back to 1793. Captain Vancouver 
landed in what's now called Vancouver. Five of his crew jumped the ship, ate some blue mussels, and died. And Captain Vancouver then tried to communicate with the local Indian tribes. What is going on? And they somehow made it clear to him, you stupid Europeans, don't you know when the water is discolored or the water is bioluminescent that you don't eat shellfish? So a lot of native tribes have learned to live with this and monitor for it. Is that the only indication, a colour notifier? It's like, it's that time of year, no shellfish. Or are there other ways to kind of register what's happening? So I originally come from Europe, and all the time I did grow up in the Netherlands, we were all told when there is an R in the month, you do not eat shellfish. There's a lot of folklore that has learned to live it. In particular, religions like the Koran, for example, it is uncouth to eat shellfish. They clearly must have had some problems, decided shellfish shall not be consumed by human beings. And so how do we monitor it today? We have a pretty uh, systematic process. It's, it's run by the Food Authority, state by state. And in New South Wales, the New South Wales Food Authority monitor shellfish aquaculture every fortnight. So um, the farmers themselves go out in, a, in their dinghy and they collect the water samples and then they filter them down and they also collect one with a net. Um, they take the salinity, they take the temperature and a few other variables like that. Then they send it off to an analytical laboratory where someone sits under a microscope like counting and identifying what species of phytoplankton there are there. And that's where you've got to be able to know the one with the spike here is such and such a species which is toxic or, or not toxic, whatever the case may be. So Sounds like you have to have a sharp eye for that. <laughs> you certainly do. And then insert global climate change pressures. What sort of impact is that having on harmful algal blooms? Are they becoming more frequent? That's a big question that occupies a lot of people's minds all over the world. Um, the only real thing that we can say, these problems will become more unpredictable. They're starting to turn up in areas that we have been monitoring. We never saw them before, and now certainly it is happening. So we had such an event in Tasmania in 2012. So people had been looking in the water, but we never found any species that was of real concern. So shellfish actually were harvested. They were exported to Japan. And our Japanese colleagues did a much better job. They actually picked up toxins in our Tasmanian shellfish. Not only is that truly embarrassing, that led to a global recall of all Australian shellfish. It was just before the Christmas season. A lot of shellfish had been harvested from the different states, including from New South Wales. Just before uh, Christmas. Yep, Jeez. Uh, and it was all out in airplanes, going out to different parts of the world. Then suddenly people decided Australian monitoring, it actually was Tasmania's fault, but Australian monitoring is not up to scratch. All of that shellfish had to be redrawn from the market. That alone costed Tasmania $23 million. We never dared really to talk to the other states in Australia because you know New South Wales or Victoria or South Australia potentially could have sued Tasmania for the loss of income just before the Christmas season. That's how serious a small mistake can be. How do you rebuild a reputation after an event like that? 
Well, it's not simple. I mean, I think it's something that the industry spent a lot of time thinking about. They went out and produced a very big detailed report about the causes and consequences of the bloom and their economic and social impact and so on. They had a big um, rethink of their whole monitoring program in Tasmania and they've now produced a program that's a lot more intensive in terms of the amount of samples taken. We had in place a sampling program where shellfish farmers had to submit samples. A single toxin analysis costed between $500 and $800 per sample. And we had to wait for 7 to 10 days for a result back in Tasmania. It clearly was unworkable. So we done just about four or five years of work where we calibrated and ultimately validated the use of a pregnancy type of test kit where the shellfish farmers themselves can do a test in 20 minutes at a cost of $30. And then they can decide, this is a good day, the shellfish are clean from toxins, let's harvest. And so we will have have this in place next year. The shellfish farmers can do the test at the farm gate. If the test is negative, it's okay to go to the market. Only when it's positive, the samples will still have to be sent to an analytical lab like in Sydney, and we're just building now a lab in Tasmania as well. Going off that unpredictability, is it kind of like cat and mouse to just be like, well, if something really throws us into a tailspin, we have to then quickly adapt to that? Is it like that? I think the global expectation now, certainly from seafood that's being produced in Western countries, that it should have been properly tested for a very wide range of alkyl toxins. But developing countries that don't have this expertise, they're very strongly reliant on seafood for their, you know, their primary diet. And so I just come back um, from Chile. Last year, they had an event of an alkyl bloom that killed in one go 800 million US dollars worth of salmon. The whole economy just was on its back. And people were falsely accusing each other of having caused this alcohol bloom. People were just receiving death threats. They were burning each other's houses. It's just complete chaos. So we should never allow this to happen in Australia. I would add to that that definitely in the Pacific Island developing nations, this is a growing problem because in those sorts of countries, they're very reliant on locally caught seafood for their nutrition. And also fisheries, export industries can be really important in those countries. And they have seen a growing incidence in relation to certain climate change effects like coral reef disturbance and rising temperatures. So the, the exact impacts are not fully understood yet, what causes what, what, how it's all linked, but they have seen these increases. Gustav Hellegraaf, professor at the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania, and Associate Professor Shauna Murray from the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. 
As the temperature slowly begins to warm as we move into the summer months, so do our anxieties around bushfires. Nearly four years on from the New South Wales bushfires that resulted in two deaths, 500 destroyed buildings, and cost nearly $100 million in damages, it's safe to say our relationship with bushfires remains tense. But what if we could tell far ahead of time just how bad the bushfire season was going to be? Rachel Nolan from the University of Technology, Sydney, was part of a research project using data collected by the Bureau of Meteorology to map seasonal trends in Australia's forests and woodlands. And one of the first questions Rachel was trying to answer was... How do you work out how dry it is out there? How dry is the forest? So the first thing is, how can we model it? And then the second thing is, how dry is dry? <laughs> and what is what is dry? I guess just to take it back a step, in order to get some of these big bushfires that we've seen uh, in the Blue Mountains in 2013 and also Black Saturday in Victoria in 2009, there's a few different factors that you need or switches that have to be turned on. So the first thing is you need a fuel load, so you need something to burn, so that's your forest. Then you need that forest to be dry enough to burn so that the fire will actually get going. And then you need fire weather, so you know there's hot, dry, windy days in summer. And then finally you need an ignition source, so that's generally dry lightning or arson. Um, and so it's that second sort of switch that we were looking at, which is the fuel dryness. So how, how dry is the forest? And that's a really important factor because if it's, if it's not dry, then you're less likely to get some of those devastating fires. And when you're talking about dryness in the forest, you mean like how wet things aren't, like how dry yeah. the leaves are, how dry the trees are? Yeah, exactly. So there's a couple of different types of fuel. So we talk about dead fuel. So that's your dead leaf litter that you see on the ground, your fallen logs, things like that. Uh, and then there's your live fuel, which is just the plants themselves. So the trees, the shrubs, the grasses. And so we can model dead and live fuel using different approaches. So for dead fuel, that's where we looked at using Bureau of Meteorology data. And for live fuel, so looking at how wet or dry the canopy is, that's where we use uh, MODIS satellite data. Going from, say, comparing one year to another, mm. why might one year the leaves be drier than another? Is that dependent on how much rainfall there was in yeah. the winter? Yeah, so rainfall is is the really big driver. And so we do get forecasts by the Bureau of Meteorology on how wet it's been and they can also forecast how much rain we're likely to have into the future, which is a really good general indicator of whether or not we're likely to have a bad fire season. But it doesn't tell you where exactly you're going to get these patches of dry forest. And so that's why the satellite modelling is so great because we can actually get an image of the forest and we can pinpoint areas which are, which are dry or not, and that really gives us more information. You mentioned the bushfires in Blue Mountains back in 2013, which mm. were quite devastating. Is that because we had a dry winter? So, so I guess just talk about some of the analysis we did recently. We looked at conditions leading up to the 2013 fires, and then we've looked at conditions that we have currently, and we're actually tracking drier conditions now than we had prior to the 2013 fires. And what does that potentially indicate? Well, it indicates that if we don't get rain before the start of the fire season, that there's a good chance that that there's a high fire danger out there. A high fire danger, does that just mean unprecedented fires? Like it, it could be quite intense, if not parallel, something like 2013? Yeah, it is difficult to say because we need that combination of 
those other factors I talked about previously. So you need the weather to line up and then the ignition and those things are um, hard to predict this far out. You kind of look at plant physiology too. Say you're looking at a, a pile of leaf litter, for example, and you're trying to determine how dry that is in comparison to leaf litter that might be more moist or something yeah. like that. What is the actual practice doing that? Do you kind of take a sample, get it into the ah. lab? What, what do you do? The traditional method is you get a sample, put it into a container, you weigh it, then you dry it for 48 hours in the oven, then you weigh it again. And so this is really, it's really labor intensive And also there's a delay between the measurement and when you actually get the answer. And so it's not very good for operational purposes. So you can't really send people out all over the state to do these measurements. It's very resource intensive. So what we wanted to do was come up with a model to see if we could predict what the moisture content was based on things that are a little bit easier to get. So that's where we use Bureau of Meteorology data. So we looked at using vapour pressure deficit, which is calculated from temperature and humidity. And what what does that mean? (laughs) So it's really just the drying power of the air. And so temperature and humidity are collected at really high spatial and temporal resolution in southeastern Australia. So we can take that data and then we can use it to model the moisture content of some of these dead fuels. And so then you can get really high temporal resolution estimates of what, what the moisture content is. This is a point that I've spoken about in the show before, is that bushfires inherently are part of an ecosystem. I guess they can be accentuated and turn into these big disasters, but they also naturally occur. How does that kind of influence the work that you do, you know, looking at the dryness of particular properties of an ecosystem, but then also recognising that things can get out of hand as well? Yeah, so you're right. These forests are definitely prone to burn and they actually need fire so eucalypts won't regenerate in the absence of fire so they're very much a part of these ecosystems that we live with and so it's really it's not a question of if but when we're going to get a fire and so I guess from our perspective trying to model when it's more likely that you have the conditions that lead to a fire then that's information that people can then use or land managers can use to make decisions about how to prepare for the fire season. Rachel Nolan, Research Fellow in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. Just over a month ago, the Melbourne Coolaroo Recycling Facility went up in flames, the third fire at the facility this year alone. Since then, a petition has sprung up on change.org to close the facility down and also raised concerns about what and how many materials are stored unnecessarily in the facility itself. Trevor Thompson is a lecturer in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at Deakin University and spoke with Liat Samaglu about the shortfalls of recycling centres and what can be done to stop this from happening again. So basically what happens is uh, recycling uh, gets collected from your household and taken to what's often referred to as a materials recovery facility or MRF and there it's put onto a, uh, I guess, a conveyor belt and then depending on the facility, it's either hand sorted or it's mechanically sorted or it's a combination of the both so that paper and cardboard will go down one area, glass and another, uh, plastics and metals and so on and so on. So these facilities have the capacity to sort a lot of materials or only a few materials. If it's from a business, then basically same process, it gets delivered to the facility in a truck uh, and then gets sorted uh, and any contamination then gets put into another bin which gets taken to landfill. 
And if we're looking at the recent fire at the Melbourne Collaroo Recycling Facility, why did it happen? Well, it's a bit difficult to say why it actually happened in terms of what actually caused the fire to start. But one of the issues was the uh, stockpiling of plastics and uh, paper and cardboard at the facility, which obviously uh, uh, increased the intensity or the duration of the fire. And that came about because, uh, to a degree, we are recycling more, so there's more materials. And secondly, the markets for the recycling uh, products have uh, decreased. So as a business, you make the decision of whether you're going to sell and potentially make a loss or do you hang on to it until uh, hopefully the prices for those materials go up. At the moment, we're in a bit of a slump with the prices. Uh, oil prices are low. Markets overseas aren't uh, buying as much. More importantly, we in Australia, we're not using the recycled materials. Businesses aren't buying it. And so prices are low. They go in a cycle. So after a period of time, they will increase. And then uh, we won't have that level of stockpiling. Uh, hopefully, we won't anyway. Is it typical for recycling plants to stockpile? Yeah, yeah. It's something that happens because of the prices and also, as I said, that we're not, uh, businesses aren't buying the materials and uh, there's got to be pressure on them to do so. So this recent fire brought about an audit in Victoria, just to also find out how many recycling plants we have in existence. Why don't we know how many recycling plants there are in Australia? It it is a big question. Part of the reason is that not all of them have to be, uh, say, licensed to operate. They might, you know, to to establish, they have to go through the appropriate council planning processes and, and so on. But they change over time in terms of what they can sort Uh, how much they can sort, how often they operate. Uh, There's a whole range of variables. Some only do a few things, some do a lot of things. And so we we just really don't know what the capacity is out there. So this type of audit will hopefully uh, identify all of that, at least for Victoria anyway. And then um, we can look at whether we need a plan B. So if if something happens at a facility such as a fire, what happens? Because we don't want this stuff to be uh, sent to landfill. Most of the recycling facilities out there in Australia are privately owned, is that correct? Yeah, predominantly they're private owned. Some will only sort uh, household waste, so they're working for councils. Mm -hmm. There's some sort of smaller scale ones that some councils uh, operate, similar to um, like a a transfer station where you might take uh, a trailer load of of, uh, materials on the weekend. Is this typical in the world, in comparison to the world, to have privately owned recycling facilities? Yeah, I mean, they they are a big investment nowadays. I mean, we've moved from just simply, you know, dumping the stuff on the ground and and, and people sorting through it. Uh, The machinery is is quite expensive. They're they're not necessarily cheap things to run and, and they require a reasonable level of staffing. So, yeah, private industry is something that has been, I guess, uh, running the waste industry for uh, many, many years uh, around the world. There are still some councils in Australia that do their collections or, or run the um, landfills, but in the main, the recycling is pretty much a private enterprise. And why do you think we need more recycling facilities? Well, we're generating more. As the population increases, we no doubt produce more materials, but as individuals, uh, we are actually generating a lot more waste. We're recycling more, so the percentage that we actually generate is being recycled, a higher percentage, but the total amount that we're generating is also increasing. 
we feel recycling is a good thing, but avoiding it is a better thing. Uh, what are local governments doing um, to upgrade recycling facilities? Are they doing anything? Again, it depends on state to state. Yeah, state by state and and council by council, because they're privately owned, then uh, it's it's not really up to councils to fund these improvements. But what generally happens if there's a new type of material that can be recycled or a market gets developed for it, then the facilities will often talk with the council about how to uh, improve what they do or increase what they do. But Again, because they're private enterprises, then uh, councils tend not to uh, put in the money into uh, the actual facilities themselves. Are recycling facilities sustainable? Like, how do how much do they emit? Overall, and there's a lot of sort of, I guess, differences around the, the country and around the world, but generally recycling is better for the environment than uh, harvesting uh, new materials. It also means that um, we're transporting less, so there's less sort of emissions from uh, the diesels and the vehicles and so forth. So overall, recycling is a good thing. I think that um, we've got to look at the types of packaging. We've got to look at who produces the packaging. But as I sort of indicated, we feel good. We buy things, we put them into our recycling bin, and that makes us feel good. But we've got to try and avoid it in the first instance. And that's where I think governments and councils have got to take a bit of a, a stronger uh, lead in educating people and pressuring businesses in terms of avoiding waste so that uh, when I go down the shops to a supermarket, I don't have to buy something that's been wrapped. I can buy it loose and I can put it into my own bag and I can take it home. They're the sorts of things that we need to sort of focus on, I think, in the in the relatively short term. So you're saying we need to even tone down our recycling, just trying to avoid it completely? It, the ideal world would be that uh, we don't put anything in a recycling bin, but we also don't put anything in a waste bin. <laughs> that's the ideal, but that's uh, that's probably never going to happen. But if we look at the sorts of things that are going into our recycling bin, could they have been avoided? Could I have chosen that product without that level of packaging? Or if I have a look at my rubbish bin, are there things in there that could have been made out of recyclable material? You know, a lot of waste is um, burnt overseas to create energy. Mm. And where we have the situation where we're uh, digging up dirty coal and we're putting waste into a landfill, perhaps we do need to think uh, a bit more strategically. Trevor Thompson, lecturer in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences, at Deakin University, speaking to Liat Samaglu. That's all we have time for today on Think Sustainability. If you like the show, make sure to find us on iTunes or your favourite podcast app and subscribe. Just search for Think Sustainability. For more information, you can also head to 2SER.com. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.